my own personal view on potlucks is that I don't like to mix a lot of different uh, dishes, especially by a lot of different cooks. I try to control myself and focus. We're in a church basement in Woods Hole, Massachusetts at a chili potluck. And I like to mix them all together. <laughs> and I will take six different chilies <laughs> and enjoy them. <laughs> so you like, you like potlucks? Oh yes, love them. Especially if I don't need to bring anything. <laughs> Did you bring anything today? Money. Roughly 50 or so people have gathered here to raise money for the victims of Hurricane Harvey, which devastated parts of Houston earlier this year. There's about eight big pots of chili surrounded by cheese, guacamole, and cornbread. Woods Hole is about 1,800 miles away from Houston, about as far from Tex-Mex as you can get. But this group is here eating together, sharing the food they made at home because they want to help. And this potluck is the way they know how. I'd say it was a great success, all in all. Sometimes we eat what we eat because there's a tradition and history that brings us together. At times, in hardship and need, and others, just for fun. That's the potluck. Potlucks have a long history in this country. They're an American tradition, and they're evolving, just like America itself. Coming up on this episode, we're going to delve into that unique history with people who've been potlucking for generations. You know, anytime a family gathers, it seems like you see that potluck, that hot dish appearing. And Americans who are new to it. The potluck thing, we don't have that in Kenya. If people are coming to your house, you cook. I'm Kathy Irway. This is Why We Eat What We Eat, a podcast from Blue Apron and Gimlet Creative. Potlucks have spread to every corner of this country, but one state in particular is arguably the potluck capital of the world. In Minnesota, potlucks arise from any occasion. I mean, my favorite ones are the ones that just like sprout up um, when somebody needs it. This is Amy Thielen. Today, Amy's a chef and the author of a cookbook called The New Midwestern Table. But two decades ago, she was moving from her hometown in northern Minnesota to New York City to go to culinary school. And she was procrastinating. It was the night before she had to leave, but she just couldn't bring herself to pack up her kitchen. I was having a really hard time packing up our life, and my friends knew it. And so they showed up. It was Halloween. They were all in costume. And they showed up with coolers of food and drink, and they had plastic forks and plates and all this stuff. Growing up in Minnesota, Amy has been to a lot of potlucks. But this was one of her favorites. Her friends gathering around her with food they'd made themselves, feeding her and raising her spirits. And all the women came into my kitchen with the open boxes, and they started, like, they packed up my entire kitchen within, like, 15 minutes, the thing I couldn't do. And then they brought all the food, you know, and that was a great night. The next day, Amy did make it to New York. She moved to Brooklyn, went to culinary school, and worked in some of New York's finest kitchens for almost 10 years. Then she moved back home to Minnesota. 
And although she's a professional chef who loves to throw intricate dinner parties, she knows that her guests are going to bring dinner too. In Minnesota, the spirit of potluck is stronger than any one cook. People just automatically bring stuff almost always, whether or not you ask them to. When I throw a party, unless I say I've got all the food covered and I insist on it, like really, just don't bring anything. Unless I say that, people will show up with stuff, whether you ask for it or not. It's just so hardwired into the Midwestern constitution, you know, to bring things. I mean, people will bring a dish. They'll bring a cooler full of beverages, whatever they're drinking. They'll bring their own lawn chair. They're going to bring, like, their own fork unless you tell them not to, basically. So you might as well call potluck for the whole thing. If there's Lutherans around, there's going to be food. (laughs) This is our second Amy, Amy Ingram. She's the director of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Museum in Walnut Grove, Minnesota. Norwegians, any of that kind of a thing. Food is going to be served no matter what. And if you're not hungry, too bad, you're going to eat anyway. Some say potlucks took such a stronghold in Minnesota because of Lutheran and Scandinavian influences. When these settlers first came to the Minnesota prairie in the 1860s and 70s, they shared what they grew. Carrots, corn, beans potatoes, your pumpkins and squash and onions. All these things were items that you could save if you could keep them in a dry, cool location so that they would last throughout most of the season. And so neighbors, often separated by miles, would get together and share or trade. They bartered, and they did it to help each other. You would have done a lot of things in trade just because there wasn't that cash flow at the time. You might have traded vegetables, even some of your wheat or something like that, with that neighbor. They needed it more than you did. They had more children. Older people that couldn't raise a garden anymore, maybe they could make something or sow something that Ma didn't have time for. In the Midwest, that tradition of sharing and bringing something does come out of out of the farming community and the farming history and, and a history of hardship, really. That's Chef Amy again. People do that. They have this feeling that they don't want to put the host out. You know, they don't want to make the host work too hard. And so people automatically bring stuff, whether or not you need it, um, just because they want to be helpful. So potlucks have a deep tradition in the Midwest. But how did they go from small gatherings to a national trend? Before the Great Depression, during the Gilded Era, Well-off Americans had developed a taste for lavish entertaining. It was fashionable to hold a big, fancy meal for a crowd. And the middle class caught on. They wanted to hold big, fancy meals, too. But then, the Great Depression hit. Suddenly, cooking for a crowd became an unsustainable expense for most families. Here's sociologist Alice Julier. She studies food and inequality. If you're trying to be more egalitarian or you live in a community where not everyone has resources, the potluck was more of a a way of doing things and creating community without making people feel like they had to put on a huge spread or have silver and, you know, a dining set of China for 12. It was around this time that people started saying potluck the way we think of it today. A party where everyone contributes food. Before the 1920s and 30s, People mostly use the word potluck to mean a stroke of luck, or the luck of the pot. Potlucks became really popular during the Depression. So popular, it changed the way we commonly use the word. It also changed food. The French casserole 
comes into style during the Great Depression. Sarah Wasberg is a food historian. She studies how food and culture intersect. Because it is inexpensive and it uses cheaper cuts of meat, it fills you up with vegetables and beans rather than meat and white bread. Sarah says that before the Great Depression, these kinds of casseroles weren't really a popular dish in America. Meat was the primary part of the meal, and you'd eat as much meat as you could afford. But casseroles were a way to stretch meat and feed a crowd. It's a lot easier and cheaper to feed a whole bunch of people with a pot of beans with some meat in it rather than the small piece of meat that you're able to afford. Back then, home cooks would often use buttermilk or bechamel sauce that's a combination of butter, flour, and milk, to bind the ingredients of these casseroles together. But not everyone wanted to spend time making bechamel sauce from scratch or had access to fresh produce, especially in the winter when fresh vegetables were expensive. Canned vegetables were often the only thing you could find. Enter the miracle that comes in a can, condensed soup. In the early 1900s, condensed soup began being marketed as help for the hostess. By the mid-20s, it was well on its way to becoming a staple in the American kitchen. Condensed soup was cheap, a dime a can, and it was marketed as a time saver. You get casseroles made with condensed chicken, cream of chicken soup, or cream of mushroom, or cream of celery, or, you know, all of that stuff starts in the 19-teens and 20s, and it just sort of takes off because it's so easy. Oh, they called it the Lutheran binding agent. This is Sonia Esch. She's an elementary school teacher in Stillwater, Minnesota. She's lived there for more than 30 years. And Sonia says that here, condensed soup is universally known as the ingredient that holds together the dish. The one dish that you'll find on almost every Pollock table in Minnesota. We're talking about hot dish. It usually has some kind of starch, like a noodle. Now, a hot dish has a structure in Minnesota. There are a few basic rules when it comes to ingredients. Got some kind of protein, either chicken or ground beef or something like that. And then there's something that, you know, makes it mushy. (laughs) Cream of mushroom or cream of chicken or some kind of soup. Her family's recipe comes from her sister-in-law's mom, Donna. It's called Donna's Potato Hot Dish. Don't worry, we've got a complete recipe in the show notes. Uh, You'd get uh, frozen hash browns, either hash browns or cubes, you can do either way. And then you mix it with, oh, there's like two kinds of cream soup. It's like cream of mushroom and cream chicken or something, you know, two different kinds. Or celery, maybe cream of celery soup, maybe that is. And it's got sour cream mixed in there and melt butter and put it in there and just mix that all up and press it in like a uh, 9 by 13 baking pan or whatever. And then you put on top like a package of shredded cheddar cheese. Uh, Oh, no, first of all, you put the crushed cornflakes on top. Oh, and there's onions. You chop up some onions in there, too. And then uh, drizzle like half a stick of butter over the top and then put shredded cheddar cheese on top in the big pot. That sounds good. It's really, really good. <laughs> it's all crispy around the edge and stuff. And, you know, it's really yummy. It is so yummy. They use green beans and then the cream of mushroom soup and then the terra tot. Yeah. That is good. This is Mary Kimani. Mary's originally from Kenya. She immigrated to the U.S. about 10 years ago. 
Mary didn't grow up eating hash brown hot dish with cream of celery soup and tater tots. But as a Minnesotan, she's embraced it. Mary's part of a large immigrant community that has settled in the Twin Cities in the last two decades. Today, the biggest Somali diaspora in the country is in Minnesota. The state also has a growing population of immigrants from Central America, Laos, Vietnam, and Eastern Africa. For a lot of these immigrants, the first place they encounter American traditions is over food. And in Minnesota, that means a potluck. It doesn't have to be perfect. Mary's in her kitchen in St. Paul. Once you know it's the good size, then you're going to cut it into a shape of a triangle or a square. Tomorrow, she'll be graduating from a nursing program at the International Institute of Minnesota. And to celebrate, her class is having a potluck. So, Mary is making mandazi. It's called Kenyan donut. The name is mandazi. People always take it with tea. Make it into a small ball and put it on the counter and use a little bit of flour so you can be able to roll it. When Mary first got to the U.S. at the age of 22, she didn't really know anyone. She missed her family back home. Our producer, Abby, asked what that was like for her. Do you remember? No, I've never been here before. You've when never I came. been to America? No, that was my first time coming. So it was very hard. The first one year was the toughest. Yeah, very emotional. You just get sick. I mean, talking to them over the phone is one thing. But being there with them, every time they, you call them, they are having a celebration every weekend. You want to be there, but you can't. So it was kind of tough, but I'm glad I, 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 I toughed, how do you say, toughen up. Yes, yeah. Did you ever have a feeling in that first year that you really did want to go back? Not really. I never give up. I always try a little harder because I know I just want to be independent because I needed to grow up a little bit. Mary eventually got married and started a family in St. Paul. You just dip the mandazi in there. Then it will start doing the bubbles. A couple of months ago, Mary enrolled in the nursing skills training program at the International Institute. The class is designed for new Americans, and it's a step toward her goal of becoming a nurse. So once it browns on one side, you turn it like that. When Mary first moved to Minnesota, she'd never been to a potluck. The potluck thing, we don't have that in Kenya. If people are coming to your house, you cook. You know, it's done in one home, and the food was bought by that family. Would it be considered rude if somebody brought a dish to a dinner? I think back home, if you did that, people would look at you like, what? What did she do? Yeah. I mean, it's weird. People would think like you think they don't have enough food. It would be taken in a bad way. If you and four other people were cooking dinner for mm-hmm. everybody, mm-hmm. and somebody just showed up with like a dish, as you would at a potluck, would no, it be rude? No, no, like, no. Oh. They would be like, no, no, no. I mean, they would be like calling the neighbors and saying, come see this. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) There will be a big thing. But for Mary, part of embracing Minnesota was embracing the potluck. She can see why people are so into it here. Oh, this is fun. Not only one person gets tired, like everybody is bringing something. Mary fries a couple dozen mandazi before she stops and insists we have tea. 
She says we'll do the rest tomorrow morning, right before the potluck, so they're fresh for her classmates. Sorry, I don't know if that's going to make noise, but we need it. So if you don't mind, I can make some tea for you. I, I want to finish up this one tomorrow morning for the okay. international. So I just cover it up. Students, can you please come and tell me if your dishes should be hot or cold? The next morning, we're at Mary's graduation potluck. Naomi Ryman, an instructor at the Institute, arranges the food. Um, wow, that looks amazing. Plantain, what is this? Smells fabulous. We get the most amazing foods here. I'm seeing uh, some meat that looks like it's chicken. It's kind of partially stewed with vegetables and plantain. Lift that screen so I can. Oh, yeah. Just get it up all the way. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. This is, looks like a cold, yeah, cold salad dish with baby beet, potato salad, um, carrots and peas. Then they put together in the middle some rice with olives on top of it. And then you've got your tomato salsa. About three dozen colorful dishes cover a long buffet table. The students are mostly from countries in Africa. So there's Somali sambusa, Ethiopian injera, and Cameroonian kati kati, that's stewed chicken, and fufu, a starchy side dish made with semolina flour. And, of course, Mary's mendazi, the Kenyan donuts. These are people cooking what they have at home, contributing what they can, just like potlucks in Minnesota for centuries. There's a short graduation ceremony, and then it's time to eat. Oh, how about these? What kind of food is uh, chicken? Is it spicy? Mm. It looks like spicy. There are dishes from so many different countries. Some of the dishes had labels, and some didn't. Is this sambusa? This is sambusa. Sambusa? An Ethiopian bread and Mexican rice? Mandasi? And this is chapati. Sometimes people had no idea what they're about to eat. Which is classic potluck. This the Asian one. That's beets. I thought it was Asian fruits. Mm, I don't know. What's it? Or it could it be was um, Asian fruit, uh, fruits. Is pink. It was looks that. like it. Yeah. Everyone fills up their plates and then they sit down at tables scattered across the room. Mary's wearing a brightly colored Kenyan dress. She's all dressed up. She looks great. Her plate is filled with food. Yes, uh, I have sukumawiki. Sukumawiki is like spinach. It's for eating, um, it's like you can eat ugali with it or fufu. And then we have chicken and rice. And then sambusa is like a fried dough, but it has meat inside. I don't know what that is. Mary goes and sits with her classmates at a big table. Everyone is talking and eating. For many of these students, getting here to this point today was really hard. Some of them worked a night shift all semester before coming to class in the morning. Others have big families to support, both here in the U.S. and at home. But today, they're here to celebrate. To sit together for a meal they've all helped make. To share a piece of their identity through the food they cooked at home. Oh, this is, this is, this is, this is going to be so delicious. 
There's no hot dish at this potluck, but this is as American as it gets. Why We Eat What We Eat is a podcast from Blue Apron and Gimlet Creative. This episode was produced by Abby Ruzica, Francis Harlow, Julia Botero, Matt Schultz, Rachel Ward, and Jorge Estrada. Creative direction from Nazanin Rafsanjani. We were edited by Wendy Dore and mixed by Zach Schmidt and Sam Baer. Special thanks to Tom Cody, Dan Richards, and Shelby Passell. We're taking a break next week, but Why We Eat What We Eat will be back in two weeks. Coming up on the next episode, the climate change diet of the future. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, do you guys have jellyfish by any chance? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Not something you've ever carried, huh? No. You can find every episode of Why We Eat What We Eat on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can also join the conversation with hashtag why we eat. I'm Kathy Airway. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.